We are in week one of our Christmas series, Emmanuel, God with us, and looking uh, really with great anticipation about what this season brings for us. And uh, just by way of shame, how many of you have not yet decorated for Christmas? A few of you. All right. That's all right. We understand. We understand you don't like Christmas. That's fine. Hopefully you'll like Christmas by the end of this. Um, but, But Christmas is one of those weird things for a lot of people because it has a way of bringing out a lot of emotions in us, some really good and some really bad. For some, there's just great anticipation and excitement about maybe the present that's under the tree or the present you put under the tree for your kid and just all the special feelings. And some of you ruin your life by watching Hallmark movies. And there's just, there's so much involved in all of this for all of you. But then for others, it doesn't quite have the same sentiment. For others, it, it feels a little, ugh. You can't wait for the holiday to get over, or you dread having to see the family members that you avoid all year, but buy them some gift just because every time you see them, right, you all chuckle because you know what what I'm talking about. See, Christmas for me is one of those things where I've always tried to take a pause, and I try to take a mental picture on Christmas morning and just try to remember what the year has been and and those feelings. And there's one in particular that sticks out to me that was just, it was magical. Like, it, it was as Christmas was supposed to be. I was sitting there. There was a fire. There was a tree, big picture window. It was snowing. I was eating cinnamon buns. Like, it was just fantastic. Everything you'd want it to be. But there's other Christmases, frankly, I'd like to forget. There's other Christmases I'd like to just take an eraser to my memory and remove them from existence. And maybe for you, you're coming into a Christmas that doesn't necessarily feel holly and jolly, but it feels difficult. Maybe there's some financial pressures coming down on you as you come into the year and you're wondering where the gifts are going to come from or you're thinking about the credit card bill that's waiting for you in January already. Maybe there's some really late relational difficulty. You're going to have to face someone you don't really want to face or maybe somebody was at last Christmas, who isn't going to be at this Christmas, and no amount of glitter can fix that for you. See, the reality is, is Christmas is a story that finds broken places and gives hope to it. So wherever you are, whether you're feeling excited, I hope this sermon comes alongside you and just builds encouragement in you. But if you're finding yourself in a season of needing hope, the question is not, or the answer is not found in avoiding Christmas, but in embracing Christmas. We're going to read a story from a man who lived a long time ago, um, and it may not seem connected to Christmas, but it's really interesting because this story that was, that was told 735 B.C., which is a long time ago, the answer to this problem in the story is Christmas and what God is going to do through the story of Christmas. Um, but in order to get there, we got to do a little bit of historical background. So we're going to be reading out of Isaiah chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, while we're while getting there, I need to give you a little background context here. So we're going to throw a map up, and here's what's happening in the story that we're going to look at today. And I promise all of this map uh, relates to, you just got to kind of Bible nerd out with me for a, a hot second, all right? <clears throat> so we're going to be reading out of a, a story of King Ahaz, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah is Israel, but it, it was divided into two nations at one point in their history. And so it was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. As we're going to read through the text today, you're going to see it called a couple different things, you're going to see it called Ephraim. Ephraim means um, Israel. It's, it's just another way that it was referred to in the Bible. Anyway, so King Ahaz is living here, leading here. Um, the northern kingdom is incredibly wicked. There is not a, one good thing that really came out of it. 
there. The southern kingdom tried to follow and honor God, but they really struggled. They had a few good kings, um, but King Ahaz is one of the worst. Um, he made some terrible, terrible decisions, um, and he's quite young in his leadership at this point, but just not a great uh, godly man in general. So what's happening here is essentially Egypt is being threatened by Assyria. So they think that this nation, Assyria, is going to come and ruin their economic power, and they don't really have the capacity or the energy for some reason to fight them. So they try to convince um, these three nations to go and fight their battle against Assyria so that they can continue to be powerful. So what happens is the northern kingdom and Syria team up and say, we're going, we're going to go fight for you. But the southern kingdom says, I'm out of here. I don't want any part of this. Stay out of my life. Leave me alone. Okay. Well, that doesn't really bode too well with these two kingdoms. So they turn and go to attack the southern kingdom of Judah for basically betraying them. So the story we're going to pick up today is right after he finds out, the king Ahaz of Judah finds out that these two nations are going to come and attack him. He's going to find himself in an incredibly difficult position, one in which there's a lot of pressure on him to make a decision to protect his people. We're going to examine what he does and what we can learn from that this morning. So Isaiah chapter 7 Verse 1, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king resident of Aram, or Syria, Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the heart of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the wanderer's field. So basically what's happening is he realizes that these two nations are coming to attack him. So he goes to the aqueduct to make sure if they're under siege, they still have water. Basically, I'm checking, am I safe? I'm going to survive this. Are we going to be okay is essentially what he's out there. So God knows Ahaz is out there. He's desiring to speak to him. And so he sends Isaiah, who is a prophet. If you're unfamiliar with how the prophets worked, God used them as spokespeople um, to the Old Testament nation of Israel to communicate his message to them. So Isaiah goes out to him, and, and here is the message that he gives to Ahaz. He says, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. You guys know those keep calm and carry on memes? Like God wrote the original one. I'm just saying. We're just catching up, right? Be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. So he basically says, would you just chill out, Ahaz? <laughs> now, let's be fair to Ahaz real quick. He has two armies ready to put him under siege. He just made Egypt really mad off to the southwest of him. So he essentially made everybody around him really angry, and they all have weapons. They're coming for him. God just says, would you just chill out? Like, listen, you don't like that response either, okay? When, when you're going through a difficult season, when things feel hard on you, and somebody's like, would you just, you, you'd just be fine? Like, that doesn't feel nice. But God says, would you just calm down? But what he find is interesting is what he says about them. He says, these two, your enemies, these two nations are smoldering stubs of firewood. He says, these things you're worried about, they're already nothing. They've already come to ash. Like, you, you, you are afraid of them, but they're already defeated in God's eyes. And you get this really interesting position that he finds himself in where he has to make the decision. Do I choose to make decisions and operate out of the, the circumstances I find myself in, or do I operate and make decisions out of what God has said is true? It's the same decisions you and I come to terms with and have to come to terms with all the time. 
Do I believe from God's perspective that it's going to be okay, that God has this under control, or do I allow my circumstances to begin to dictate my next move? Now, Ahaz is going to find himself in a difficult spot. But what I also find interesting about this text is that he doesn't deny the problems. He literally, he says in the next verse, we don't have it on there, but the next verse literally says, yeah, I know they're coming and I know they've planned your ruin. I know they're coming to destroy you. Do you ever feel like at times, in order to have peace, you have to kind of ignore your problems or pretend they don't exist, <laughs> right? Like just to get a moment of silence, I'm just gonna pretend the children aren't setting the house on fire, right? Like there's, there's just, we just try to have to ignore it. And yet he's inviting him into a place of rest while the enemy still exists. While the problems are still real, he says, find rest. This is similar to what David says in the Psalms, King David, who also went through the similar experience. He says, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Do you see what he's saying there? He says it's real. The problem, the sickness, the cancer, the relational struggles, the financial struggles, the difficulty, it's real and you don't have to deny it, but it does not have to win the day. Though the army seems big, your God is bigger. Though the trial seems insurmountable, your God has already defeated them and is already ash in the past. And he says, yet, and even then, I will be confident. He's going to go on to tell Ahaz essentially the timeline in which this is going to take place and how they're going to be defeated. And he kind of maps out where they're going to die or where the, the nations are going to fall. But then he says something in, in chapter, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 9, excuse me, um, that I think is really interesting. He says this. So if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. After giving him all of this information and everything he needs to know, he says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. You see, God had backed Ahaz into a corner. And he had put him into a position where he had to make the choice to live a life of faith or to take matters into his own hands. Now, you can imagine the pressure he is feeling. He is responsible for everybody around him, for the entire nation and their livelihood and their well-being. And he's been told to sit still? That doesn't bode well for a lot of us. And he says, but you're in a position where the only chance you have of making it out of this is if you sit in faith and you wait and you trust me. See, what I find so interesting about the promises that he's going to make to Ahaz here is that Ahaz has already made up his mind to go elsewhere. We'll see this in a few seconds. He's already decided to go somewhere other than, than faith, and yet God still speaks to him. God still pursues him, and God still gives him a promise because what is true in 2 Timothy is true then and it's true now, which is if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. It had nothing to do with Ahaz. It had nothing to do with his goodness. And one of the things you'll hear us say around here all the time is, we know we don't deserve the grace of God, yet he freely gives it. Why? because it's based on his character, not on ours. And so he's speaking to a man who doesn't deserve a rescue, and yet he's trying to provide it. So let's see what he says, because he doesn't leave him with blind faith, just like he doesn't leave you with blind faith. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. 
Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? It sounds really noble, doesn't it? It sounds like, oh, I wouldn't dare put God to the test. But he's a hypocrite. He's just talking the spiritual jargon, and there's no actual heart behind him because he's decided to go elsewhere. But I find it so interesting. In verse 11, he says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, saying you have this relationship. You ask him. God would show you. God would give you hope right now if you just ask him. But then in verse 13, he says, you're trying the patience of my God, almost identifying the fact that Ahaz has no relationship with God. You, if you knew him, you wouldn't have to test him. You could you'd trust him. He says, but you, you've missed that. So here's what God says in his grace through Isaiah to him. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. There's something interesting happening here. Um, if you study prophetic language and prophetic literature, there's this thing called a double prophecy or double fulfillment um, that happens occasionally. And this is one of the instances where it happens, where as you're reading it, it would have kind of two meanings. So if you're looking at it from this way, there's something that would immediately take effect or sign for Ahaz, and then there would be uh, another fulfillment behind it. We read the New Testament, and we see that Jesus, or the, the writer of the New Testament is going to um, say that this is Jesus. This is pointing to Jesus, Emmanuel. So there's a lot of debate about what that first sign was, but the meaning would have been incredibly clear to Ahaz. It would have been incredibly clear to Ahaz that promise given to you in this situation is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Though the enemies besiege you, my promise to you is that I am with you. <laughs> Though the walls are caving in, I am with you. See, and Ahaz finds himself in the exact same situation that many have found themselves in before, and many will continue to find themselves in where they're in a spot where the only promise they have to hold to is the promise of God's presence. See, Ahaz actually finds himself in good company because all throughout um, history, God has promised this one thing to his people. He promised it to Isaac when he wanted to return to Egypt in a famine. He promised it to Jacob as he flees from Esau and later has to go back and face him. He promised it to Moses as he was questioning his abilities to lead, that he would be with him. He promised it to Joshua as he takes over from Moses. He promised it to the people as they're getting ready to go conquer the giants and go into the promised land. He promised it to Gideon as he faces the Amalekites. He promised it to Saul, to David, and to the exiles. To Jeremiah as he was about to be killed to the, the exiles as they were coming back. And it finds itself all the way in the New Testament when he's, Mary finds out that she's about to carry Jesus and the promise to her is, God with us, I will be with you. See, the entirety of scripture is, is this promise that God is with us, is with his people. Ahaz is forced to ask the question, is that enough for me? What we find is that one of the reasons he didn't really care to get a sign from God is he already determined how to get his own answer. He already found his own solution because he's a man's man and he's a king, and so he figured it out. And you know what he did? He went to the nation of Assyria, and he stripped the temple of gold and silver. He went into God's temple, a place that was meant to praise and honor him, stripped the, the gold and silver, ran to the king of Assyria, and said, would you come protect me from these two? Isn't that interesting? God said, I got it. These two are going to come to nothing. He says, 
No, no, no. I, I got it. In fact, I'm going to go take all the gold from your temple, and I'm going to go find rescue for myself. But what happened? Well, Assyria came, and, and they solved the problem. But they ended up becoming basically a slave to Assyria. See, what is so interesting as I read the story is that he robbed God to provide deliverance, to, or to provide rescue for himself where God already promised deliverance. God already said, I've got this. I'm going to take care of it. You're going to be all right. And he says, no, no, no. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rob you of what is rightfully yours to go provide what you already promised me. And as I sat there and thought about that, I just grew convicted. Because I realized that's me. And I realized I'm Ahaz. Because there's so many times in my life where God has promised peace. He has promised joy. He has promised hope. He has promised deliverance. And yet... I rob God of the affection that is rightfully his to go find it in other places. I rob God of the worship that he is due because I go find peace and joy in other places. I rob God of so much, but he's already promised those very things. See, when pressure hits us, we all turn somewhere. We all go someplace to find rescue. For him, he went to Assyria. He went to his own wit question for us this morning is where are you turning for rescue? When it feels like the walls are coming in or you feel the pressure, you feel the tension, you feel the stress, whatever you feel, where do you go? Because we all go somewhere. The problem is sometimes we go to places less than God. So financial stress, do we turn to worry like we talked about last week? And that's our solution is we just worry more and hope to get out of it? Relational stress. Maybe you're going through some relational stuff and your tendency is just to sit on the TV and disengage or go on social media and disengage. Or maybe you're just feeling beat down at work and your tendency is to double down. If I just work harder, I can rescue myself. Maybe your tendency is to go to a substance or to food or I don't know what it is that you may turn to, but we all go somewhere. And maybe you say, you know what, it's just a little ice cream. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a little, it's just a little, and you're right. Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's not sin. The question isn't what you're turning to is evil. The question is what are you turning to that's less than God? See, here's how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I have the right to do anything. I can go someplace for rescue and reprieve, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, what happened for Ahaz was he went someplace for rescue and it provided temporary relief, but it ended up becoming his master. So you're free to go to social media to check out, but you go there long enough and that pseudo-reality and instant feedback loop will become your master. You're free to run to your spouse and that's a good place to go, but you go there long enough and you ignore the relationship with the Lord, uh, there will become and grow an unhealthy dependency there in which you need value from the other individual that will crush both them and you. You can go to work and, and try to work your way out of it and there's nothing wrong with hard work, but you go there long enough for rescue apart from the presence of God and that will, you'll be trapped to believe that one more late night of work will finally bring you rescue. One more project will finally bring you rescue. See, what God is offering is actually freedom. Freedom from your enemies and freedom from being enslaved to any of those things. See, the story of Ahaz really is a microscopic picture of the whole nation of Israel, but a microscopic picture of 
the human experience in which we all face the difficulties that are going to push us and reveal and, and put pain points on us that we don't like to just bring out what's inside of our heart. See, Ahaz didn't get to see the promise of Jesus come true. We get to celebrate that as a past historical event. But for him, there was 730 years before Jesus came. We don't know how many years exactly before the first fulfillment would have given him hope, if you will, but this war went on for three years. A lot can happen in three years. And so I'm sure there was this question in all of their minds, did God forget us? Did God leave us? You see, the promise was made to him, but the waiting remained. Maybe for you, there's a promise you're hanging on to this season. A promise that God was going to do something, that he was going to deliver you from a situation or um, provide something, or I don't know what it is for you that you feel like God owes you or God has promised you. But maybe you find yourself in a season of waiting. Tell you what, we hate waiting. I've said it before, we're a generation that opens up the microwave before it's done because our instant food didn't come to us fast enough. We're a generation that doesn't tip well if the service was slow. We're a generation that has a discussion with our spouse in the car about picking the wrong line at the grocery store because it wasn't the shortest one, right? You all know what I'm talking about, all right? We're such an impatient generation, and yet God uses waiting more often than we probably like to admit because in waiting, what happens is our hearts are revealed. You see, waiting reveals where our hope is placed. If you're in a season where you find yourself longing for God to do something, longing for God to rescue, longing for God to deliver, and you don't see it yet, a lot of what goes on in your heart becomes very evident. God, you should have, yet you haven't. God, why didn't you? God, God, God. There's all of these things. It's kind of like your kid on Christmas morning when you make them sit on the couch and read Luke 2 before you open the presents. Like, there's just torture going on in that poor child's heart because they're wondering what's in the big box in the corner. Is, did I get what I wanted? You see, you get a window into your kid's heart in the same way that God gets a window into our heart. In those seasons of waiting, is our hope placed in the promise of God and the presence of God? Or is our hope placed on our ability to come through? Or frankly, has our hope left the building entirely? And so we just numb. Hebrews says this about hope. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. I want to pause there. Do you, do you notice this? We fled. When pressure hits, we always go somewhere. The call of Christmas and the call of Hebrews and the story of Ahaz is set to remind us that when you flee, flee to the Lord. When you flee, flee to the presence of God, not from the presence of God. And you say, you don't know where I've been. He does, and he still is inviting you to flee to his presence. And when you're there, the hope set before us will greatly encourage us. What would have been different for Ahaz if he had sat and wait and trusted the Lord? If he fled to the Lord rather than to someplace else for rescue? Let's read the next verse. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Can I tell you that the world around you, and maybe even some of you here today, are running, chasing, trying to find a place to anchor your hope to? 
We're chasing things. We're running after the next thing. And the story of Christmas is saying, hope is anchored in the presence of your Savior. Hope is anchored in the presence of God with us. And so the dilemma set before Ahaz is the dilemma that's set before you and I all the time. When pressure hits, where do we go? When, when pressure hits in your relationships, is the promise of Emmanuel enough for you? When the pressure hits at work and the meeting's not going well, is the presence of God enough for you? When the child is going wayward and not listening to you and making awful life decisions and you have to watch with pain, is the promise of God with you enough? Or will we, like Ahaz, turn and say, I've got this, just watch. We're gonna sing a song here in a few minutes called Hope Has a Name. Um, and my, my hope and prayer as we come into this season is that wherever you are, whatever you're facing, that you could anchor your hope in the name of Jesus. You could anchor your hope in the life of Jesus. You could anchor your hope in the promises of Jesus and that you would find great and expectant joy as we come into this season. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you and Sometimes the difficulties of life feel huge. They feel overwhelming, and sometimes they feel small, and they feel like we have them, God. But I pray that in our heart of hearts, God, that when we feel pressure, we would flee to you, that we would run to you for rescue. God, as we celebrate your coming at Christmas as a past historical event in a couple weeks, we know that we wait with great expectation for one more promise. And it's the promise of you returning to bring us home. Lord, I pray that in our waiting, that our hearts would be set on you. I pray that as we wait for you to come and set all things right and remove us from our enemies and remove us from sin and sorrow and suffering, God, that we would wait well. That what is revealed in our hearts in the season of waiting would be godliness, would be character, would be a desire to long after you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And we give you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.